All right, so last week um, we were looking at uh, some things that we needed to pay particular attention to as we um, moved into the Davidic covenant. Um, number one being that the war between David and Saul has concluded. David has captured the, the capital city of Jerusalem. The ark is brought to Jerusalem. And lastly, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, um, God has established peace and security throughout the land. So, without further ado, let's examine um, 2 Samuel 7 and learn about the Davidic covenant. So if you have your Bibles, let's flip there, 2 Samuel 7. Now, the covenant itself is in verses 8 through 17, but I really just kind of would just take an excursus and walk through this chapter. So let's begin um, by starting off and looking at verse 2. 2 Samuel 7, verse 2. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So at this point David has settled into the kingdom, but he notices that something is very wrong, something is awry. He lives in a beautiful house of cedar, but God dwells in a mere tent. Now this wasn't just any tent, right? This was the tabernacle. As far as tents go, this one was pretty lavish. Right. Uh, if you've read the design of this thing in Exodus, you know that this isn't just something that you can go pick up at, at Bass Pro. Right? It's expensive. Um, but still, this contrast, it bothers David. Why is what I have so great and what God has so meager, David is wondering. Right? I'm in a palace. God should be in a temple. So his motivation is to build the Lord, a grand temple, to honor him and to glorify the sovereign God. And he voices this to Nathan. And what is Nathan's response? Well, in verse 3, Nathan says, And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So we should understand Nathan's answer here as a, a general comment of affirmation. As David's counselor, Nathan gives his own opinion and encourages David. Because later that night, Nathan, the prophet, receives an actual word from the Lord regarding this matter, which we'll read here in a minute. Uh, God says, right, don't build the temple. Now, I, I bring this up because some have actually suggested that Nathan sinned in verse 3 in his response. And I would argue that that's wrong for several reasons. Number one, there was nothing uh, sinful regarding David's actual desire. Um, Nathan was only encouraging him as a personal counselor in his pursuit to glorify God. He is essentially saying it's, it's right for you to believe that God is greater than you, to recognize uh, the contrast, even in your homes. Uh, and secondly, when Nathan says, for the Lord is with you, uh, that's true. Uh, God says later in verse 9, for I have been with you wherever you went. Okay? And, and most importantly, number three, when Nathan does receive prophetical guidance from God regarding this matter, he delivers it faithfully. Okay? So let's look at God's response on this matter. Um, we're going to read 2 Samuel 7, uh, verses 4 through 7. Let me get there. This is a large block of text here. <clears throat> but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, 
Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, I want us to notice a couple of things here. Number one is the timing. Okay, God comes to Nathan that night and says, tell David he is not going to build me a house. Okay? There's an immediate response from the Lord because, of the, uh, because the reason for not building the, the temple is that important. And we're, we're going to look at that reason here in a minute. Number two, notice the kindness in God's response. Okay? He doesn't rebuke David or Nathan for that matter. Instead, it's instructive. Okay? His focus is on how he hasn't been in anything in a tent since day one. In fact, nothing in the regulations about the ark in Exodus suggests that it was placed in a building. Okay? <clears throat> Rather, it needed carrying poles. It was meant to be mobile. Okay? God says, at no point did I give any command to build me a house. Because, believe me, if I wanted a house, I would have said, build me a house. Okay, quite the opposite. The ark, like I said, needed to be mobile. As long as God's people were intense, God was intense. The Lord has always identified with his people. And that picture, by the way, culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. John 1.14 and to drive home the point of God's compassionate correction of David, look how God starts in verse 5, right? It's a question. God is a wise father. He's not asking this question because he doesn't know the answer, right? He wants David to think. This is a good lesson in how we discipline and instruct our children. But what is God's focus in the question? Because if you're not careful, right, you put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, or in this case, in the wrong word, Right? And when you do that, it changes the whole meaning of the question. This is where good hermeneutics come into play. <clears throat> is God focusing on the word you, right? That he doesn't want David to build the temple? Is it on house, right? Maybe he doesn't, maybe he's not happy with a tent. Maybe he doesn't want a house. Maybe he wants something else. Maybe it's on dwell. Maybe God doesn't, uh, maybe God wants David to understand that you can't contain God. All these are plausible, right? But how do you know which one is right? How do you know you're not reading what you want into the text to support your own conclusions? Well, as always, we look to Scripture, right? Solomon tells us the answer in 1 Kings 18. This is verses 17 through 19. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. So here we're reminded that David's motivations were good. His heart was in the right place, which is why God doesn't rebuke him, right? But the focus is on the you in God's question. David was not the one who was supposed to build the temple for God. 
It was his son, Solomon. And actually, God provides the reason for us. In First Chronicles 22.8, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. So because of David's violent past, God determines his hands are stained to red to contrast, or to construct rather, such a holy edifice. But God's motivation for this decision are actually much bigger than that, right? Bigger than his past or for using Solomon. The primary reason for this choice is to demonstrate that God is the master builder who will establish David's house. And that leads us into the covenant that God makes with David. So what I want to do right now is read verses 8 through 17 to get an overall picture of what God is doing and how he is blessing David. And then from there, we'll walk through it piece by piece. So this is 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 17. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, uh, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of, his, of the sons of men. But my steadfast, I'll just read the whole thing. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all his vision. Nathan spoke to David. So let's look back at the beginning of verse 8. Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. Here we see that God chose David and made him ruler. And there's an emphasis on God's election and on God's appointment. God chose David personally and appointed him specifically to be king. And we get more of that sheep language that we read about last week in Psalm 78. This is, this is quite the promotion for David, right? He goes from being a shepherd to being a king, from overseeing sheep to overseeing the whole kingdom of God from being in a field to being in a palace. There's quite a few steps in between, but God says, I took you from the least to the greatest. You will will now shepherd the nation of Israel. 
Look at verse 9. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. So here God is telling David three things. Number one, I've been with you wherever you went. And that's an important statement considering everything that David went through with Saul. Right? I've cut off your enemies. I'll make your name great. Interesting. Where have we heard that statement before? In the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12. The people in Shinar try to make their name great, right? But instead, it becomes Babel. They don't get a great name. Rather, God tells Abraham in Genesis 12, I will make your name great. God tells David, your name will be cited among the names of the great ones of the earth. That was certainly true then, and I would argue that it's still true today. Abraham, Moses, David, right, are easily among the great names of the earth. Even if someone is not religious, right, they've at least heard of Abraham, Moses, David. Now look at verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So here we learn of a great blessing from God. God will give the people their own place and rest from their enemies. Peace and rest from your enemies is a big deal in and of itself. But this land promise is important. The land promise goes all the way back to Abraham. And it's confirmed in the Mosaic Covenant when the land is divided and portioned out among the 12 tribes. But it's not until the time of the judges that the people are ruled in the land, still within the Mosaic economy. So David, assuming the role of king, right, fulfills something specified in both the Abrahamic and the Mosaic administrations. Remember, Moses doesn't circumvent these covenants, right? They're all connected. They are established in grace and, con and consummated in the promises made and fulfilled. Again, covenantal continuity here, right? Now, look at the last part of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So, God tells David that he, Yahweh, will build a house for David. Now, this is actually pretty cool what's happening here. There's a beautiful play on the word house going on. The Hebrew word for house is actually translated, you could translate it three different ways, palace, temple, or dynasty. Kind of got like a triple entendre going on here. <clears throat> so if you remember back in verse 2, right, David says he wants to build a house for the Lord. David means temple. God says, no. And this is one of the major reasons why. Because God says, I'm going to build you a house. David already has a, house, a palace, right? He certainly didn't need a temple. God was going to build him a dynasty. David is the beginning of a royal family lineage, a family dynasty. With this particular promise, God is declaring that he will establish David and his seed after him as the monarch of God's people. 
These words and the verses that follow are the, the formal inauguration of the kingship of David. And God is doing it as a covenant. Now, this covenant that God makes will assure David a, a number of blessings. Let's, let's take a look at them. Number one, look at verse 12. His own flesh and blood will occupy the throne. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, this is a big promise that God makes to David right here. And it shouldn't be lost on us that this, this is what Saul wanted, right? This was the desire of Saul's heart. But he didn't get it. And in some regards, it's kind of a shame, right? Because his son, Jonathan, was a good man. The, the, really the opposite of his father. And David and Jonathan, right, they were good friends. They were like brothers. But this idea of dynastic secession especially in the ancient Near East, right, is a big deal. And God says, I'm going to give it to you. Here's the second blessing. David's heir will fulfill David's desire by building a house for God. Look at the first part of verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. Now, this really is a blessing, because although David can't build the temple himself, he can help plan it. He can help gather the materials, right? He can rest in the knowledge that his son will build the temple for the Lord. It really is a blessing to be involved in this way. Third blessing, David's heir will stand in unique relationship to God. That comes in verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, hopefully we can see how influential this verse is. When Nathan says this, the Hebrew ear at this, at this moment would immediately have gone, I'm sorry, wait, what, what did you just say? It would have perked up because those of us who get to call Abba, God, get to call God Abba, Father, we, 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 we may miss the significance of this. But for the Hebrew, this statement would have been breathtaking. Okay, so Israel, collectively, right, is, is God's son. Cool, right. The Hebrew knows that, and, and, and we know that. Got it. Because the idea of sonship, right, it's not unique just to the New Testament. But here, we see that an individual, one person, is being called a son to God the Father. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. For a Hebrew to hear this would, would be mind-blowing. A single person to be called the son of God is huge. This is a major blessing of the Davidic covenant. It provides an important precursor to Jesus' claim to being the son of God in an altogether surpassing way. And the New Testament writers pick up on this immediately, Right? Listen to Hebrews 1.5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So, that first portion comes from Psalm 2.7. But the second portion is a direct quote from 2 Samuel 
7.14. Now, in Old Testament Hebrew, might be tempted to think that Solomon was going to be this single individual that God would be the father. Uh, the, the, the father to, the, the one that God calls son. <clears throat> but we know that Solomon, despite his many excellencies, failed to follow the law, right? And he was not, quote, established forever. The promise can only go to the Davidic Messiah. Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, right, are linked by this special designation of son and by their messianic theology. The author of Hebrews rightly applies these words to Christ because as Messiah, Jesus inherits David's role as the representative of God's people. Now, Jesus is the great shepherd king. Here's a fourth blessing. David's heir may experience the punishment for sins, but he will not be cast out like Saul. Look at the rest of uh, verse 14. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, but the stripes of the sons of men, uh, I'm sorry, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now, just be careful here, because after a quick read, you might be tempted to think that we're still talking about Christ. We're not. Switching back over to David's biological heir, Solomon. Okay, how do, we, how do we know that for sure? Well, look how this portion starts, right? When he commits iniquity, did Christ ever sin? No, right? So clearly he's talking about Solomon and his mistakes. Okay? In fact, these verses are important because they foreshadow the fact that Solomon will disobey in some, some pretty significant ways. Okay? His pagan wives will, will lead his heart away from God. But despite these heinous sins, God will not cast off Solomon. He will be disciplined. He will be punished, it says in verse 14, but never cast out like Saul. And that's an important connection, because what what happened to Saul? Well, in 1 Samuel 9 and 10, Saul is chosen and he's appointed by God to be king. But in 1 Samuel 13, only three chapters later, right, Saul makes a big mistake. He presumptuously assumes the rights of a priest that that he didn't have, and he makes a sacrifice, a sacrifice he was specifically told to wait and be shown what to do by Samuel. So because of this, God casts him off and takes steps to replace him as king. But God says, despite Solomon's sin, I will not deal with him like I did with Saul. I'll punish him but the Davidic line will continue. And that's what we see as our our fifth blessing in verse 16. The house, the kingdom, the throne will be established forever. Verse 16 says, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. As if it has not already been made abundantly clear by this point, God concludes the covenant by saying, House, kingdom, throne, it's sure, it's, it's, it's secure, it's established forever. David's dynasty and rule will be everlasting. Now, we've just read the whole of the Davidic covenant, but, uh-oh, we have a problem. 
the word covenant wasn't used, was it? In any of that section. It didn't occur anywhere in verses 8 through 17. But that's no big deal, right? We've dealt with this before. You're all trained covenant theologians by this point, right? How do we respond to that? Well, first of all, all the elements of a covenant are there, right? But secondly, and probably most helpfully, other portions of Scripture explicitly state that God made a covenant with David. Right here, okay? Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Okay? So, first of all, we see the psalmist call it a covenant. Plain as day. Okay? But second of all, it takes language straight out of 2 Samuel 7. Okay? And other passages in Scripture, like Psalm 132, uh, will do the same thing. Okay, so again, although the language of covenant isn't explicitly used in uh, 2 Samuel 7, the, uh, the idea of a covenant is definitely here. Okay, now, before we conclude the Davidic covenant, I want to look at one more topic, um, and that is how the Davidic covenant is an expansion of the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants. We're going to take a look at some key texts from David's response to God. Now, on the whole, David's response in verses 18 through 29 is, is really best characterized as a reverential prayer. Okay? One in which David displays a close intimacy with God. Uh, a similar intimacy shared by Moses and Abraham. But what I really want us to do is turn our attention to verses 22 and 23. Now, normally I, I prefer the ESV translation, but for these two verses, uh, I'm going to read from the NASB because I like how it draws on a few key uh, elements that I think the ESV actually misses. So this is uh, verses 22 and 23. For this reason you are great, Lord God, for there is no one like you, and there is no God except you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, and to make a name for himself, and to do a great thing for you, and awesome things for your land because of your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from other nations and their gods. So these two verses really highlight David's response to God's blessing in the covenant. In verse 22, we get a couple of key phrases. <clears throat> Number one, he says, O Lord God, indicating again that close relationship that David shares with God. But number two, we get an explicit statement of monotheism. When David says, there is no one like you and there is no God except you. We're acutely reminded that only through the one true and living God can these promises come to their fulfillment. <clears throat> All other gods are false gods and false idols. They can do nothing and they can save no one. They certainly make lofty promises, but in the end they will deliver nothing. Only through the grace of the triune God can man find redemption, forgiveness of his sin, and everlasting salvation. Now, pay particular attention to verse 23, and this is why I like the NASB translation a little more, because it, it picks up well the Hebrew ideas of, of nation, exodus, and land. Okay? What did the Mosaic Covenant do? Remember, 
I repeated it over and over. It fulfilled the promises to Abraham. That was one of its key things, right? Fulfilled the promises to Abraham. And one of those promises was to create a family from Abraham and build it into a nation. Israel wasn't a nation under the Abrahamic covenant, but through Moses, Israel is made into a nation. Verse 23 says, And what one nation on earth is like your people Israel? This phrase follows on the heels of that monotheistic statement made just a verse before. There is no one like you and there is no God except for you. Right? It's describing the incomparability or the uniqueness of Israel because they belong to the one true God. They are God's people whom he has redeemed from Egypt and established for himself forever. Here's the other thing we need to note about verse 23. David reaffirms the point that this all stems from the Exodus event. God delivered and saved his people all the way back then and has been faithful to deliver them up to this point. And the Exodus doesn't stop at the Mosaic Covenant, right? It ties itself all the way back to the Abrahamic Covenant. We saw this when we looked at the Mosaic Covenant. God promised Abraham that his people would be slaves in a foreign land. Then God fulfills it in the Mosaic Covenant. David is reminding us of that in verse 23 and how God has been faithful to deliver and prosper his people. Lastly, we see the land promise. Again, the land promise was originally given to Abraham, but it becomes a little more distinctive here in the Davidic covenant. Because one of the jobs given to a king is to secure and protect his land. As king, David was commissioned to oversee and fulfill the land promise given to Abraham. When he captures Jerusalem, the nation of Israel is established. And all the tribes are united. The promise to Abraham really begins to come to fruition. So clearly the Davidic covenant doesn't circumvent the Mosaic covenant. Okay? It goes directly through it and back to Abraham. It has to intersect it. Or the whole doctrine of covenantalism makes no sense. This covenant is a manifestation of the grace we saw with Abraham and an expansion of the covenant made with Moses. In fact, one could argue that the land promises were foreshadowed all the way back to Adam and Noah. Adam was in a garden. His job was to keep it and expand the garden. He failed. Noah, he had promises made to the earth after the flood, right? Now, lastly, I want you to look at verse 24. And you are established for yourself, for your, and you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. <clears throat> so here we get a reminder of what the covenant of grace has, uh, was always meant to be about. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is that Emmanuel principle that Robertson mentions in his book, Christ of the Covenants. This is that thesis statement that runs throughout every covenant of grace. It really is the chief point of every covenant until it finds its fulfillment in Christ. So again, this covenant, these promises, these truths in the Davidic covenant, they're all intricately linked with their predecessors. They don't stand alone. 
Now, before we conclude this covenant, I think it's helpful that we take a quick look at the New Testament connections because the New Testament writers make quite a few references to this particular covenant. So as we've just learned, the Davidic covenant ends with the promise that a king in the line of David will reign forever. But here's the great dilemma for Israel, right? About half a millennia later, there's no king in Israel. And for about 600 years, the people are asking the question, how can this be? There's no king on the throne that descends from David. Did God break his promise? What do we do with that? I mean, not only that, but the people were in exile. This, this situation is really the backdrop for the preaching of the prophets. And so we get incredible prophecy, like, like the one we read last week from Ezekiel or Isaiah, right? Who says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53.5. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, let me say this, despite Israel's situation by the exilic period, David's dynasty was really without parallel in the ancient Near East. In terms of length, his dynasty lasted 400 years. That really is impressive. I mean, that's longer than any ancient uh, Egyptian dynasty, or really any other for that matter. But here's the problem. The problem isn't that David's dynasty would last a long time. The problem is that God promised that it would last forever. The answer to this dilemma is that this promise can only be fulfilled in the eternal reign of King Jesus. We read in Acts chapter 3, this is verses 23 and 24. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. The New Testament writers understood it from the very beginning. But what is Luke saying here in Acts? What was it that the prophets were proclaiming? The New Testament understands the Davidic reign as typological. It was a type that pointed forward to a fulfillment that was greater than the experience of the realized promise of the nation-state of Israel and a Davidic kingly line. The nation of Israel and kings under the old covenant were merely a type and shadow of the unbroken eternal reign of Christ. That's why when we look at Matthew 1, he starts with a genealogy, right? Matthew's gospel is primarily written to a Jewish audience, right? So he comes right out of the gate swinging in the first verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew 1.1. Now, there's a lot of fascinating things we could say about this genealogy, but suffice it to say, Matthew's primary goal is to demonstrate Jesus' legal claim to the throne of David. And he does that quite well, right? He starts in verse 2 with Abraham, he gets to David in verse 6, and he ends with Jesus in verse 16. Jesus, or I mean, sorry, the Jews kept extensive genealogy. So to establish, they, they did this to establish a person's heritage, their inheritance, um, legitimate legal rights. So it, it would have taken very little effort for Matthew to do this and do it well. 
Now, this genealogy is crucial because he's establishing how Jesus' ancestry is inseparably intertwined to the covenants that God made with Israel. And this would have been particularly important for a Jewish audience. When Matthew calls Jesus the son of David in verse 1, this harkens back to the language in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, that the Messiah would descend from a royal lineage. Jesus is the rightful legal heir to the covenant promises associated with the Davidic throne. He is also the rightful legal heir to the covenant promises related to the Abrahamic seed. And then we get confirmation of that because in Matthew 2, what happens? It starts with Gentiles looking for a king that's just been born. But months before he is even born, what happens? Well, Luke tells us in his gospel that the birth of David's heir is foretold. Flip, flip with me to Luke chapter 1. Start in verse 26. <clears throat> oh, actually, I need to get there too. Sorry. Let me get there. Can I get somebody to read uh, verses 26 through 33 for me, please? Yeah, I'll do it. Thanks, sir. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at, at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Keep going. Yeah, one more, please. Thank you. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Perfect. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> so Gabriel describes Christ's birth in detail. And he says in verse 27 that he will descend from Joseph, who is of the house of David. Right? So an angel of the Lord comes down and says a king is going to be born. In verse 32, all that language is taken from 2 Samuel 7. He will be great, son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And in verse 33, we get the reminder that indeed this dynasty will last forever as God promised. Jesus was the one promised to David. He will fulfill what Solomon and those after him couldn't. So you see how much scripture comes alive when you begin to understand these covenants, right? Especially our New Testament. You cannot rightly understand your New Testament until you understand your Old. <laughs> okay? The Old Testament is really just a book without an ending. But you have to read and understand that book first. Anyway, that wraps up the Davidic Covenant. But before we adjourn, there's one, one last topic. I promise, I think I've said this like three times. There's one last thing I want to address. Okay? I don't want to take up too much time with this. Um, but we do need to talk about it. Um, 
and that's the issue of Zionism. Zionism. <clears throat> We've spent a lot of time over the past few weeks talking about the nation of Israel, right? This morning and, and last week we talked about the importance of Jerusalem, okay? And, and I find it providential that we're going through these Old Testament covenants right now, um, especially the Davidic covenant, while simultaneously there's so much turmoil and civil unrest in the country of Israel. I've, I've seen so much bad theological Facebook posts, okay, profile picture changes. Most are the, uh, the ones I stand with Israel, right? They got the Israeli flag in the background. My favorite one, though, that I've seen is, is the, the lion, the very big lion standing over uh, Israel roaring ferociously with the big Israeli flag in the background. That's my favorite one. So I know if I'm seeing it, you're seeing it. Okay. So I thought it'd behoove us to take a minute this morning and talk briefly about something called Zionism. More specifically, Christian Zionism is, if that's even really a thing. Zionism is a nationalist movement supporting the establishment of a homeland for the Jewish people in Israel. Okay. Christian Zionism, and I use that term very loosely, endorses the return of the Jews to Jerusalem. Okay? And they believe the, uh, in the founding of Israel as a state to be prophetic. Okay? They believe in the reestablishment of Jewish sovereignty and take all the language of the things that we've just studied okay? and they make them literal. Things like how God will establish the people of Israel forever. Okay? And worst of all, they turn these beliefs into an eschatological event. Okay? Because according to their Bible math, okay, they will take things like the gathering of Israel from Deuteronomy 30 as a prerequisite for the second coming of Christ. So the idea is that the faster we establish this, the faster we establish the nation of Israel, get the Jews back there, right, the faster Christ will return. This is why you will often hear people sending funds to help build the new temple in Jerusalem, okay? Christians are doing this, okay? This is not only unorthodox, it is heretical and idolatrous, okay? Let me be perfectly clear. Zionism is false teaching. It is based on poor hermeneutics, dispensational eschatology, and a typical evangelical misappropriation of the Jewish people in redemptive history. Okay? This idea that God has a special plan for the Jews in Israel. Okay, if, if a literal Davidic monarchy was not in the plans, what makes you think a literal nation of Israel was the plan. Okay, let me teach this as, as clearly as I can. Okay, we, believers, are the temple of the living God. We should not be building a new one. Okay, we, believers, the visible church, are the spiritual Israel. Okay, anyone else, to include Jews, are worshiping a false god because it is not the living triune God. If you are not worshiping the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with Jesus as the Son of God, you are still in your sin. 
It, it is that simple. Our prayer is not to reestablish a physical nation of Israel and build temples. It is that the Jews, and, and all people for that matter, would repent and recognize the true Messiah. Now, does this mean that I am a cold-hearted jerk who, who doesn't feel bad about what's going on over in Israel right now? Of course I do. Seeing war like that is it's heartbreaking, right? The, the unjust taking of an image-bearer of God is, is a terrible thing. But do not expect me to change my profile picture and partake of a false Zionist movement. No. Nor should you. Do not fall prey to this and do not be afraid to call it out when you see it. We must always remember Jesus is actively in the business of putting all his enemies under his feet and bringing victory for us, his church. Okay? We will win the day, not those who oppose him. And if Israel needs to hear anything, it's to hear Peter's sermon from Acts chapter 2. Okay? Acts 2, verses 36 through 38, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. Israel doesn't need a nation. They need Jesus. Now why do I even bring this up? Because believe it or not, this is a sticky topic in a lot of circles. Well, for one, like I said, it's a false teaching, and it's my duty and pleasure to call it out. But I talk about these things because I, I don't just want you to have a theoretical knowledge of this stuff, okay? I want you to have a practical mastery. We didn't learn all this covenant theology for, for you to go, okay, that's cool, and then, then just set it on the bookshelf to collect dust, okay? This stuff is applicable. You need to be able to apply it when someone says, hey, you know, I, I think we should, we should send money to go build a, a temple in Israel. I, I believe in this stuff. You could say, hey, let's go get a cup of coffee and talk about that. <laughs> okay? And when they still believe it, you need to tell them to repent. Okay? Now, if you have questions about this or you want to talk to me more in detail, come grab me afterward, okay? Just remember, if the world and its evangelical theology is going one way, Take a good look around before you start walking in that direction, okay? Because nine times out of ten, it's wrong. So that wraps up question 34 and our study of the old covenants. You did it. I'm proud of you. You hung in there. Let me conclude with Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. Know then that, this is, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith... Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God has set out to save a people for himself, and that is exactly what he has done. From the beginning, salvation has always been one way, by grace through faith. Both Jews and Gentiles were granted a full remission of sin and eternal salvation through the one true and living God. Christ saves in both the Old and the New Testaments. Next week, we will pick up at question 35 and look at the New Covenant. Does anyone have any questions? Excellent. Let me pray and close this out. 
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, our day of rest. We uh, anticipate and look forward to this cool front that you are bringing today. Um, We thank you for the cool temperatures. Father, we pray that you would be with us in our fellowship today. Uh, We thank you for um, the grace that you have given us and provided for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Um, From the beginning of time, this was your plan. And we thank you that you have brought it to fulfillment in him, our Lord and our King. Please be with um, our worship today. May it be pleasing in your sight. Please be with Caleb as he brings your word to us. Pray that your spirit would be with him as he boldly proclaims your gospel. May our hearts be receptive to it. We lift him up to you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.